Welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. We have been studying in the New Testament book of 2 Timothy for the past number of weeks. And now, just before we turn to the fourth chapter of this book, Doug is taking a few weeks to help us understand apostasy, which is so relevant in our days. Now, this is not a dropping away from 2 Timothy, but rather a teaching that is given to Timothy by the Apostle Paul just before his death. Many of us have never considered apostasy, or we have chosen to believe that this is something that is not important for the Christian. But we quickly begin to understand the importance of this in the 20th century. So much of what God has given as importance has been tossed aside, and therefore we are missing the great improvements of our time. Doug has prepared these lessons so that we, the people of God, and the members of the Believer's Bible class, the importance of doing what God has told us to do. The Believer's Bible class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. For over 150 years, this church has upheld the meanings of the Bible, and our class follows this. We meet every Sunday morning at 9.15 in LaVorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. We always invite visitors to come and see what is happening in this class and look forward to meeting you in the very near future. Well, Doug is at the podium ready to begin, so let's go into the classroom of the Believer's Bible class. Here now is our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. I can tell you I have been waiting a long time to start this lesson series. It's a little break so that we can understand the and be in the best position to understand the rest of Second Timothy chapters 3 through chapters uh, 4. And it started out as one lesson. Now it's probably going to be three or four, although my estimates have been faulty in the past, and Jerry is probably we could give you a more accurate. You will see from our uh, summary outline that we will talk about in a minute, how far we're going to go and have an idea. But I think this series, many series within this book, is one of the most important topics I have addressed in the last five years here in this church, in this class. It is that important. And we need to understand it. And we need to remember that the enemy is insidious. That means highly sneaky. And we are going to look at it. It's the subject of apostasy, if you hadn't figured that out yet. You know, Paul and Timothy were in Rome together and spent a great deal of time there. When they first got there, it is my understanding that Timothy said to Paul, you know, I'm really getting hungry. Is there something we can do about it? And he said, you know, there's a nice restaurant here. 
Paul looked over there and said, Ah, pasta, I see. (laughs) Apostasy is a subject that most believers they know very little about. If you would ask them to define it, very few would be up to the task. And yet, New Testament writers have written over and over and over about what is going to happen. In fact, there was a student at Dallas Theological Seminary that he decided to do a doctrinal dissertation on how prominent the subject of apostasy was in the Greek New Testament, in the writings of Paul and in the other general letters. And so he did the research, and it turns out that apostasy was a frequent subject matter in the New Testament, and also at times in the Old Testament. We'll see that after we get a chance to define it. Some people might question, now wait, was there really apostasy in the Old Testament times? Isn't that a New Testament? No. Let's look at a passage or two. In Genesis chapter 4, it's the story you've heard of Cain and Abel. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the first flocks, uh, firstlings of his flocks and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel's and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Now, what was God's statement or what was God's plan for sacrifice? You, You start with Eve. Did Eve knowingly turn away from an an established truth that God had given? No, she was deceived. If you look in 1 Timothy and you look in 1 Corinthians, both it says she was deceived. She was tricked by Satan. Then Adam was put to a choice and he had to choose. Do I choose to die with my wife? or to abandon her and stay with God, at least in his thinking. And if you listen to his explanation to God, he he wasn't trying to make an excuse. He was explaining it. He said, God, the woman who you gave to me, she took and ate, and so she gave to me and I ate. Now, some people say he's making an excuse. No, he's not. He was pleading, this woman is so wonderful, this gift you gave to me. I couldn't abandon her. And he chose. Now I think with Cain, he knows the established truth. Sacrifices must be a blood sacrifice. The only way you can cover sin is through the shedding of blood. No, I'm not going to do it that way anymore. I'm going to change. And it was the way God set it up. And so he's making a turn. I'm not doing it that way anymore. An intentional decision to leave the truth. And so that's what I think apostasy is, and we'll define it more in just a second. But let me give you another example of that in the Old Testament. It's found in the book of Exodus. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we did not know what was become of him. Well, he hadn't showed up in 40 days, so he must be missing. And Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives. Now, wait a second. 
tear off? I wouldn't dare do that. <laughs> I, I imagine not. Uh, wise man in some respects. Uh, tear off the gold rings which are ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. Now, if you read farther, when they built this fashion, this golden calf, you know what they called him? More specifically, Yahweh, Lord in all caps. Can you imagine? Now, I don't think that God has any blood, but if it did, it would be boiling. I imagine when Moses found out, well, Moses was so mad, you know what he did? He made him grind up that golden calf into a fine powder and made everybody drink it. Oh, he was furious at what they had done. But that's apostasy. Now, there's an important reason I brought up this one. How do you respond to apostasy? And the answer is severely. How have we responded to the growing apostasies in the church? Passively. So we go on. And I want you to see, there are other places in the Old Testament. You could look in Jeremiah 8.5 or Hosea 14.4, and you would find other stories of apostasy. But in the New Testament letters themselves, apostasy was the second most dealt with topic in all of that writing. So what are we going to study? Yes. Where, where exactly does it say that the calf was actually called Yahweh? Well, you look uh, further in uh, 4 and 5. He took this from their hand, fashioned it in a graving tool, made a molten calf, and he said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar, and Aaron made a proclamation, tomorrow shall be the feast of Yahweh. Does that answer your question? I could answer that one pretty well, because I forgot about those last two verses. <laughs> All right, let's look at this summary outline. The first one, we're going to look at the word translated apostasy in the Greek New Testament and come up to an important understanding of it, because this word has two potential meanings or two potential sets of meanings, and we have to understand it. Secondly, we're going to seek to define what apostasy really is so that we have a good definition of what that means, apostasy. Number three, we're going to consider the characteristics and the indications of its arrival in force because it is growing stronger and stronger. Number four, we're going to understand that apostasy is a sign of the end times. Now, end times, I want you to think about that a second. End times of what? Uh, it's going to be very important because I'm going to have to change something important that I have taught for a long time and that I found that I was wrong. Mm. But that's a teaser. I'm not telling you now. Number five, we're going to come to learn that it is our duty to oppose apostasy, our duty. And number six, we're going to eventually learn how to combat apostasy. What should we do? Jesus' half-brother is going to give us some strong instructions in that regard. And finally, number seven, we're going to learn to withstand the counterattacks. When you stand up and you oppose uh, uh, apostasy, are they all going to say, oh, what a lovely person Julie Brady is. She's telling us the truth and straightening us out. 
That despicable woman, all she wants to do is cause division in the church. All she wants to do is this or that. They're going to attack. Should we say, oh, well, if the attacks are coming, this is not for me. Cindy, would you take that position? Attacks are coming. This is not for me. No, ma'am, I didn't think you would. So this is our plan. We're going to go through it. So let's look at this word first that I want you to see. But before we look at this word, let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you now, and we want to come to you in the power of your Spirit and ask him to allow us to pray through him so that our prayers will touch your heart and you will listen joyously to what we have to say to you. Now, Father, this, this topic and this concept is so important for us to understand and you've put it so much in your scriptures. Help us to come to see it. Help us to understand it. Help us to understand the importance of things. Father, help me to simply be a tool or an apparatus that you use to transfer the truth of your word into all of our hearts and then have the Holy Spirit cement it there so that it won't be taken away from us and it will always be there as a grid to judge what's going on around us in other churches and in our church. I pray these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, let's look at this word. In Greek, many times there are nouns and verbs that have the same meaning. We don't do that as well in English as you do in Greek. Let's say if I was to tell Julie, you know, it's, it's, it's hot, why don't we go take a swim? What is swim? Noun or verb? Noun. Take is the verb. Swim is the noun. It's the object, the direct object of the verb to take, which is... Yes. Well, I wish you would. I'd like to see your diagram of that. Now, let's say we were off the coast of Orlando, and Julie was swimming in the sea, and all of a sudden I saw this fin approaching her, and I said, swim, Julie, swim. (laughs) Is that a noun or a verb? A verb. So in this one, You can take words like love. It can be a noun and a verb. I raised my voice because of the urgency of the instructions. You know, you would hate for Julie to sit there and say, why? (laughs) No, but she wouldn't. She would start swimming and swimming fast when she heard me talk like that. Yes, Mark. I didn't realize Orlando was a coastal city. (laughs) Well, it's the only one. Okay. I was going to get in trouble if I said Daytona Beach. But, you know, sorry. Good point. So we have this noun, apostasia. Well, that sounds just like the English word, right? Yeah, apostasia. The verb form is aphistomai. And uh, there you can see it at the end. Now, I have it written in Greek, and then I have what the English spelling of that Greek word would be. So... What do these words mean? The meaning is basically the same depending on the context. 
And context, of course, is the key to understanding everything. Now, you say, wait a second. That's just like our English word, apostasy. Now, we have always talked about that in this class, that when you're looking at the Greek, you have two choices that you can make. One, you can translate the word, and one, you can transliterate the word. What does transliterate mean? You just take the Greek word and put it into English, which is what apostasy was supposed to be, but we'll talk about that more in a minute. Why would one choose, though, to transliterate a word instead of to translate it? Are there any good reasons to transliterate a word? Well, yeah, there are. You can, one reason would be, what if there's no word in the English language that properly communicates the meaning of that Greek word? Then you might want to transliterate it. And then if you have a good study Bible, you would make notes of the possible meanings or the, the shades of meaning here. A second reason would be that there are more than one meaning of that word in the Greek. And it could be translated either way. So the reader needs to come to understand the two different ways. So you make another note in your study Bible when you're transliterating it. These are the two possible meanings. One, there's no real word to properly explain the meaning of that word. Two, there's alternate translations. Sometimes people translate it for doctrinal reasons. And that's not, that's not right. What do I mean by that? Uh, you take the Greek word baptize, or, or the English word baptize, that's a transliteration of the Greek word baptizo. You see, if they translate it, it would be to immerse into a liquid. Oh, but some people don't do that. And so doctrinal differences, they, they just transliterate it, and then you can have it mean whatever you want, you see. Sometimes there are financial reasons for the same thing. With, well, gee, if I put a merce in there, none of the Catholics or Episcopalians, they would buy, wouldn't buy my Bible. If I have translated it sprinkle, which is, of course, an incorrect translation, certainly none of the Baptists would buy my Bible. So, um, or any biblicist, yes. If the King James translators had translated it correctly, they probably would have lost their heads. Mm -hmm. So the King James was a sprinkler. Yes, on baptism. You're right, the Church of England. We're going to talk about those translations here in just a second because I want you to see the history of things. So what does this word, and one thing you'd never do would be to transliterate a Greek word into a word that already exists in English. And I believe the word apostasy from my etymological studies indicate that it already existed before it was transliterated. Because you see, the initial translations of this passage in English did not translate into apostasy. They translated it. Some wrong, but they translated it nonetheless. So, let's look at this word, apostasia. What does it mean? If you wanted just a simple meaning, it would convey the concept of either to lead away or to depart from. To lead away or to depart from. Now, when I studied Greek, I didn't study it in a seminary. 
I didn't study it in a Bible college or a Christian school. I studied it in a very religious place, the University of Texas. <laughs> and we studied it from a, and I wanted to study it from a Koine Greek secular perspective because I could learn the spiritual implications, but I wanted to know what the world said about Greek and how they viewed it. Now, when it came down to understanding what a Greek word meant, there was, in a sense, a Bible to them. You, they would call it Liddell and Scott, Greek to English lexicon. Uh, in fact, in your notes, you will see the exact description of that Greek to English lexicon written by Henry George Liddell and Henry Scott, together with a revised supplement in 1968. The original was written in 1940, and then a revised supplement by Sir Henry Stuart Jones and Roderick McKenzie. It's printed by Oxford University Press. On page 218, you will find that it lists five potential meanings for this word apostasia, five potential meanings. And I want to look at them as we go. Rebellion is the first one. It would say rebellion in a political sense or in a national sense, rebellion. The second one was apostasy, that is in a religious or theological sense. The third one means departure in a physical sense, to leave from one place and go to another. To the fourth one is disappearance in a physical sense, that something just disappeared. And finally, five, distance in a linear sense, which is still more of a physical concept. It's talking of, you ever heard the English say, we need to put some distance between us and that. That's the same kind of concept here in this Greek word. So two of the meanings have to do more with a metaphysical or intellectual concept, and two of them have to do with a physical concept. Now, I know what's going through your mind right now. Why in the world is this so important to talk about? Well, you're going to see in a minute if you will just stay with me. Now, let's see in the Greek New Testament how it's used. First, I want us to look at three places where it's used in a physical sense. A physical sense, to depart, to disappear, put distance between. In Luke 2, 36 through 37, it says this, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phenuel of the tribe of Asher, and she was advanced in years and had lived with her husband for seven years, and after that a widow, and she never left the temple serving day, night and day with fastings and prayers. Something we don't seem to do a lot of in our church, right? It's fasting. But anyway, this word left, that's the aphistomai, the, the verb here for apostasia, aphistomai, left. And you notice when there was here, there's a description of where she left, right? All right. Second example. In Luke 13, 27, Jesus is talking and he is saying, and he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. Depart here is the Greek verb aphistomai. And here it's talking about a physical departure. I want you to leave me. 
Stay away from me. I don't want anything to do with you. All right? Third example in Acts. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. Stay away. Physical sense, right? Don't have anything to do with these people. Stay away from them. Now, let's look at some examples of it translated in a metaphysical sense. We're going to start with 1 Timothy 4.1, a verse we'll talk about a great deal in this study. But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Is that physical or metaphysical? Metaphysical. And in fact, does it tell you where the departure is going to come from or what you're departing from? The faith. Yes, the faith. And when it has that definite article there, that that means God's truth. Okay, that's what Paul means when he says the faith. The definite article is not used in Greek as much as it is in English. Yes, sir. Now, in that verse, it does state that part definition would be paying attention to the secret spirits. And that's what he did. I think, Gary, you and I would just have to disagree on whether it was apostasy in the garden or not. And I know you think it was. I, I tend to think it wasn't. It was deception. And we'll go from there. Because apostasy is an intentional action. A person chooses to turn their back on the truth. They're not tricked. They make that decision. So falling away from the faith. Now let's look in another example. In 2 Timothy 2.19, we have looked at this already. Everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Abstain there is the verb aphistomai. Does it tell you what it's abstaining from? Wickedness. Is it metaphysical or, or physical? metaphysical, wickedness. Wherever wickedness may be, it has, because wickedness is always a choice you make in your heart, a decision you make in your mind, that I'm going to do this. One more I want us to look at in Hebrews. Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. Falling away here is the object of that preposition. And what are we talking about? metaphysical, and it tells you what it's from. Now, here again, Doug, why are you saying this is so important? For our time, one of the most important verses to understand in the Scripture is 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. Let's look at 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, so we can come to understand it. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasia comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. What is it talking about? Well, we begin to see the importance of this. Who is the man of lawlessness? The Antichrist. It says the man of lawlessness is going to be revealed. But some other things have to happen first. 
Well, what are those other things? The apostasia. It's going to come first, even before the man of lawlessness is revealed. But what does it say it is? Does it say what it's a departure from or a falling away from? No. Why do you not explain a word like that when you have it in there? If the people you're talking to already know what you're talking about, you see... You know, people who are in the know, if I was to say, well, I believe that the team that's really going to win is the university. Everybody knows I'm talking about the University of Texas. I mean, when you say the university, that's just well known. <laughs> I, that's bad. I know some of you wouldn't like those examples, especially Damaris, since she's a big follower of Zero U. But I... That was a cheap shot, wasn't it? <laughs> Let no one in any way deceive you. So it doesn't want you to be deceived. For it will not come unless the apostasia. Now, historically, the context has been understood on this passage. Now, let's look. I want you to see it in context. Now... We request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Now, what is that talking about? That's at the first of the chapter, right? The first of the paragraph. What do you have at the first of a paragraph? The subject of the paragraph, right? What is that event is that talking about? Is it talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ? Well... In the second coming, isn't the Lord Jesus Christ coming to earth? Are we gathered together with him? No, we will be with him. There's no gathering going on. There's warfare going on. We are with him in the second coming. We're coming back. Whether you believe in a pre-trib or a mid-trib or a post-trib or uh, the pre, pre-wrath versions uh, of the rapture, all of them agree that the church is coming back with Jesus. In Revelation 19, it makes it perfectly clear. So this is talking about the rapture, right? Now, we do want to say, when we go down to verse 3, for it will not come. We need to know what the it will not come. People want to say, oh, the rapture. No, because it's changed. So... In regard to that, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us. Because, see, they got a letter that told them some heretical things and it was signed Paul. And Paul had to tell them, that didn't come from me. Somebody is lying to you. Uh, as if a letter from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. The day of the Lord is the antecedent of it will not come. All right, the day of the Lord. What is that? Well, Thessalonians know that. How do they know that? Because in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, it explains to them what the day of the Lord is. That is the tribulation. You look in the Old Testament, that was the name for the tribulation, the day of the Lord. 
And you, we could go through all kinds of passages to show you that. And if you want to look at that more, get on the website and pull up the Rapture series. And you'll find it probably in 8, 7, or 8, or 9, uh, in one of those th three lessons. But anyway, so the antecedent of it will come is the day of the Lord, the tribulation. Therefore, what is the apostasy? Should it be translated falling away or rebellion, or should it be translated departure or disappearance? Yes. And if I was translating it, I'd go out to the farthest conservative extreme, disappearance. Because what's going to happen? We're going to disappear. We're just going to be gone. All the nice clothes we have, they're going to be left behind. I want you to know that, that everybody is going to see what you were wearing on that day. Well, not everybody. The ones who are taken won't, and they're the only ones that count anyway. Oh, but that'll be different. You're going to have a glorified body, Don. Not like any Amalekite body you've ever seen. A glorified one, just like Jesus. He's going to have a lot of work on his hands. <laughs> yeah, but he can do it. All right. So now we're understanding this. How about historically? How was it understood? Well, you know, there was at first, as far as organizations go, one church. And what was that one church? The Catholic Church. And they would have some Bibles. Would they let the normal people have the Bibles? And even if they did, could most of the normal people reading the language in which the Bible was written, which was what? Latin. Now, when the Reformation came, what did those people say? The common man needs to be able to read the Bible for themselves because of the priesthood of the believer. And so what did they start doing? They started translating the Bible into English for English-speaking people. If, and that's what we are, so that's what we're going to deal with. In 1384, they translated the Wycliffe Bible. When they came to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, how did they translate apostasia? The departure would come first. Departure. When you get to 1526, the Tyndale Bible, how did they translate it? Departure first. In 1535, the Covendale Bible, departure first. In 1539, the Kramer Bible, departure first. In 1576, the Breacher's Bible, departure first. In 1583, the Beza Bible, departure first. In 1608, the Geneva Bible, departure first. The Catholic Church says, we don't like this. And we see an opportunity here. So they did their own English translation in 1576, the Dewey Reams Bible. And you know how they were translated it? The Protestant Revolt. <laughs> the Protestant Revolt. Is that any relationship to our Dewey? Uh, no. No, he has nothing to do with Catholicism. I can assure you. And his wife wouldn't allow it anyway. So, then 
the English version of the Catholic Church, the Church of England, had a translation. They had to make a choice. And they chose falling away. So the King James Bible, I think, translated improperly. So now the Bible that I, trans that I champion, how did they translate it? No. Apostasy. They wimped out. They didn't even translate it. How could they do that to me? I don't know. Yes, you want to defend the King James Bible? No. I'm going to say way back when the early church was, you look at their sermons that they taught, and they taught it departure. Yes, it was. They understood it because they had the apostles teaching right then. Uh, you know, they still maybe have been able to see in the early, in the early church copies of First and Second Thessalonians. You know, copies from the original, not copies and copies, 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 copies. But copy. So I want you to see that, and I want you to understand that. And, you know, there's sometimes there's politics involved, church politics involved in translations. And we need to understand, we need to seek purity in our translations, just like purity in our doctrinal understandings. Donna. Let me tell you, if you go to the website and you look up the series on the rapture, understanding the rapture, understanding the rapture, part seven, you see, let's move on because I want you to see that now we understand this word. We understand the importance of the term and the meaning. It can mean a falling away from the faith, an apostasy, or it can mean a departure or a disappearance. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, it is clearly a disappearance. That's what's coming. But in many other passages, it is going to explain it to us. And that's 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 is one of the only times it leaves this word by itself without a contextual explanation in the sentence. And you have to go in the paragraph to do that. So, what we should understand, or how should we understand this concept of apostasy within the context of the church? Now, let's stop there just a second. Why am I limiting understanding apostasy within the context of the church? Because that's the only one that's doing it. Is the world departing from the truth of God? They don't have anything to do with the truth of God. That's the world system, the cosmos. But the church is the one who could depart from the truth of God. Chris? How does the believer depart from the truth of God? Well, no, 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 wait. I'm not saying the believer, but, but it is possible, and I'm going to tell you. Was Cain a believer in God? He talked to God face to face. After that event, God came and talked to him. He said, be very careful, Cain, because let me tell you, sin is crouching at your door like a lioness, ready to consume you. Don't give in. I think so. Can believers do despicable things? Is, was Saul saved? Yeah. He, he was filled with the Holy Spirit for a period of time. Of course he was. You can ask Kathy. Well, yeah. <laughs> I'm afraid to do that. <laughs> and my name may be involved in some of that. So I don't want to ask any of those kind of things. Now, who? It talks about, what is, how does Paul describe himself? Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will 
save me from this sin, this body of sin and death. Deliver me from this body of sin and death. Yes, I think believers, and believers can be deceived. Here again, was Eve a believer? Was she deceived? Yeah, it happens. Have I been deceived before? Have you been deceived before? Hopefully, God's grace keeps us straight. Yes. That Jesus gave to the apostles when they asked them for a sign of his coming, Matthew 24, 4, take heed that you are not deceived. Yes, take heed you're not deceived. Let's move forward here on this just a second because apostasy is only in the church. And yes, I believe there will be believers who will be deceived. Uh, but unbelievers also in the church. Because there will be both. A basic meaning of apostrophe conveys the idea of a departure from a known or long-established truth. But I think a deeper understanding in regards to the church finds apostasy taking the shape in two forms. There can be two forms. The first is a departure from one or more of the key doctrines of Christianity. The departure from one of the key doctrines of Christianity with the concomitant position that the new doctrines are the new truths are the real biblical values and doctrinal realities. Now that's what apostasy is. It, it leaves just like Cain. Oh, this is the new way to do it. Offer fruit of the, of the produce of the ground. They're going to tell you, no, this is the new way. God has given me a new understanding. You can find that in Jesus' calling. Uh, all kinds of new understandings are available. And he's ready. If you empty your mind enough, he will drop things into your brain so that you... The question is, what's really the best description of what's being dropped into your brain? But you need to understand that. And that is the first concept of an apostasy. Key doctrines. But then there's a second, which is more all-inclusive. A complete renunciation of the Christian faith and message which results in a full desertion from Jesus Christ's divinity and many times even his existence, his very existence. No, there was nobody. A complete. Now, are there churches who have done that? Has that second definition ever applied to our church? No. We've never completely left. Is there any time in our church we have said Jesus Christ is not God? I, I'm not aware of it. I would be livid if I had somebody in our church saying that. But you need to understand the concept of the target. Now, we all know that Satan is a very brilliant fellow. He's smarter than anybody in this room. Anybody in this room thinks they're smarter than Satan? Well, you have been deceived. In fact, one of his greatest accomplishments is to convince the world that he doesn't exist. And except maybe on an old-timey box of Red Hots. That's, it doesn't exist. Now, if you're picking a church that you want to fall to apostasy across our land, what would be the number one church he would pick? First Baptist Dallas, in my opinion. He wants to destroy this church. The, can you imagine what MSNBC and CNN and all those that followed them 
would love to report such a fact about us. They've turned away from Jesus in the Bible. They don't longer think it's value or the church is just disintegrated because it has no real purpose. They would love to say that. They would be repeating it for weeks and weeks as the primary news story, the fall of the great First Baptist Church of Dallas. Who's responsible for protecting and defending that church? Just the pastor? Just the pastor and his staff? No. Us. Now, do the scriptures really teach that in the latter days, a great apostasy is coming? Well, let's consider that so we see it in the scriptures. 2 Timothy 3.1 But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Now, this word translated difficult is a little wimpy in the translation. Destructive times will come. You need to understand it. We'll look more at that when we get to that particular verse. But Follow this in the paragraph. This is the start of the paragraph. But, I, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. And then switching down to verse 13. But evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. What will these apostates do? They will go from bad to worse. They will deceive others. And they themselves will be deceived. And it's just a, a grand deceptive party, so to speak. Now, a little later, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1, Paul says this, to make it perfectly clear, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word in season and out of season, Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instructions. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Now, if I was translating this passage... I would have at the bottom line, the truth in capital letters, because that's the same as the faith. It's talking about the word of God. They will turn away from that and go to myths. Do we see that in our nation? Yes, we do. Yes. In the King James, it says they will turn their ears away from the truth and will be turned unto fables. It's almost like once you turn away from the truth, you're gone. That's it. The problem with that translation is, Vera, we have a dual predicate here. They is the subject. They will turn away, or will turn away, and then the subject of the next one is, and they will turn aside too. So if you say they will be turned, now you change the subject. So... That's something to consider in, in formulating. I believe that every word has exactly the meaning God wants and the grammatical setting of those words are exactly what God wanted. And that is important. Every single part of it. This is the most miraculous book to ever exist. But, you know, that's, that's the crux of the matter because in Romans 1, 
they do not love the truth and they get turned over by God. Yeah, but that's the world. I know, but I'm saying they, but that can happen in the church with people that reject the truth of God's doctrine and then they get, they believe. Well, men like that are, or human beings like that are not a vacuum. If they get rid of one thing, they're going to fill themselves up with something else. But I want you to see something that's very important. And we need to come to understand it in this because it, it, it's the role. First of all, preach the word. Is the word preached in our church? Yes. So that's something that's got to be. That is part of the protection. If you don't know the word, can you oppose apostasy? No. 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 You've got to know the word. Well, when should you do it? Be ready in season and out of season to do three things, right? Three things. What are those three things it says to do? Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. How many of those are fun? Yes. One is to exhort. That means to encourage, to build up. That's a great thing. One of the things that we should judge our situation, the teachers in our Sunday school classes and Bible studies we go to, the people that speak to us at retreats or conferences, or the person or people who speak to us from the pulpit, are they doing those three? Reproving, rebuking, and exhorting. Well, that's the, that's the question. You have to ask. And each person should come to an understanding of that. If that is being done with great patience and instruction, then that is a layer of defense to apostasy. If it is not being done. But I, knew a, I know a guy who I study a lot. He's a great scholar. He was in a church over in California when he was in high school. He graduated, went, went to college at another uh, location in California, and then he felt the Lord's call, and he went to Dallas Theological Seminary. And then after uh, completing the seminary, he went back to his home church and worked there. But when he went back, he said it was a different church. For example, we don't talk about the blood anymore. Because that's repulsive to a lot of people. So we don't, we don't from, the, from the pulpit, we don't ever talk about the blood. We don't talk about prophecy fulfilled, that's going to be fulfilled in the future and, and what the Bible prophecy. People, they don't understand. They need something for the present life to help them along now. Now, this guy over in the corner, he teaches a small class and then has prophecy, they would say. But, but we don't teach that in our church. Didn't used to be that way. What's hit that church? Apostasy. First, a few key doctrines. Then we're going to see what happens as we look at some of the characteristics of this because that's the next thing I want to go to. Apostasy will invade the church subtly and over time. Satan is patient. It will invade the church subtly and over time. Look in Jude 1.4. It says, For certain 
persons have crept in unnoticed. Now, does that sound like subtly to you, Don? Crept in unnoticed, exactly. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. What is the perfect example of one who subtly crept in? How about Judas? Now, did Jesus know all along? Yes. But you see, that's different. Jesus is the Son of God, and we're just humans. So we can be deceived. Can you ever deceive God? No, you can't trick him. He knows the truth. He's untrickable. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long before and marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now we're going to look at this verse for a number of characteristics, but I want you to see first, have crept in unnoticed is only one word in the Greek. Pereisduno, uh, and pereisduno means to enter secretly, to slip in stealthily. That's what they're going to do. They're going to come in with cunning and over time. When you just said that, does that imply that they know that they're that way? Yes. Certain ones of them, they know what they're coming in here to do. Then they will deceive others who are weak because they don't know the scriptures. You see, and this is what I should have said in response to Chris's question earlier. Believers who are uneducated are the prime target for apostates because they're easy to trick because they don't know the truth. You see, say that again. It also says that women are. Yeah, I was afraid to say that because of... Uh, but you can say that, and it says that women are more easily deceived, and yes, that happens. And I think that's in Titus, isn't it? Uh, I think you can see that in society today, that women have been deceived. Yes, they've been deceived in a lot of different ways. I can kill the gift that God gave me, and that's my prerogative, you know. Oh, it's just my body. No, it's not. Anyway, look at Galatians. 2, 4, and 5. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which is in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjugation to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain in you. That is one of the key characteristics. It's subtle and it's over time. Let's look at a second one. The apostate movement will exude ungodliness. Look again in, in Jude 1.4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out ungodly persons who turned the grace of our God into licentiousness. Now, ungodly persons. In the English, we tend to think, well, that just means wicked people. Now, this word is more specific than that. Uh, ungodly persons is a translation of the word, uh, the alpha privative word, ascebus. And ascebus means destitute of reverential awe towards God. They are against God. They believe they shouldn't serve God, that he's, let me put it a different way, that he has no right to control their lives. Have you ever met somebody like that? Yeah. 
I can remember a witnessing experience I had while I was down in, in Austin going to school, and I knocked on the guy's door, and I asked him if I could come in and talk to him about something important, and he said, what? And I said, uh, your eternity. And he said, okay, stand here and tell me. And I went through and I explained to him everything. And I could tell he was listening to me. And he was a very honest person. He said to me, do I have to promise that I will stop sleeping with my girlfriend and on occasion taking recreational products and putting them into my body if I become a believer? Now, some of you may not like the answer that I gave him. I said, no, you don't have to promise that. All you have to do is trust him that he will save you. But I can tell you this. If you do that, God is going to start working on you, and he's going to do everything he can to eliminate those things from your life because they're in antithesis to him. He will help you and provide you the means to repent, and if you don't, he will correct you until you do. And there was silence. And I could watch his face. He was thinking. He was trying to decide, weighing, hmm, do I want God controlling my life or not? Do I want God? No, thank you. I don't think I want to do that, was his response. I said, you sure? He said, yeah. If I change my mind, I'll come find you. He never came find me. Who knows where that guy is now today. But you see, people want to control their own lives. They don't want God doing it. This is my life. Very well may have. Could be. But it's a perfect example of that attitude. I hadn't thought about that in a long time. But, but that's what happens in ungodliness. Yes. few thoughts. No, they don't. And we need to come to see this. Now, we've run out of time. I want to finish with a few things I want to explain to you. Some of you might say this. Apostasy is coming. Is that not true, Doug? Yes, it is true. And we cannot stop it. Isn't that true, Doug? Yes, that is true. Then why should we do anything if it's coming and we can't stop it? Because we could slow it down. But if it's still coming, what's the use in slowing it down? I'm going to give you an example. And I guess you will know something about me if you don't know it already. I am first and foremost, after being a Christian, a Texan. And back in 1836... The leader of our state, a guy by the name of Sam Houston, yes. needed to be in a position. The uh, man named Sam Houston said, for our state to survive in this revolt against Mexico, we're going to have to prepare an army. But Santa Ana is coming with 6,000 man army, which at that time was a tremendous amount. And we are... So he talked to one man. His name was William Barrett Travis. And he said, I need you to join together with Colonel James Bowie, and I need you to defend the outpost in San Antonio. We know it as the Alamo in San Antonio de Bejar. 
He took 167 ragtag volunteers down there with him, along with Colonel Bowie, and then some Tennessee volunteers led by a man by Davy Crockett to this place right here, to this place right here, the Alamo. When you put a movie together, you, you have those three stand out front, don't you? Crockett, Bowie, and Travis. In their hearts, those men knew they were never coming back from that battle. But they knew they were fighting for Texas and to give Texas a chance to survive. For 13 days, those 167 men held off 6,000 with them being much better supplied with cannon and riflery and horses and things like that. William Barrett's Travers' letter to Houston say, we've held out for this long, and I think we can hold out a little longer, but if you don't relieve us, we're going to die. And he signed his letter, victory or death, William Barrett Travis. They held Mexico off long enough to where Houston could train and organize the military. When they got up to San Jacinto, and those men charged in the middle of the dawn against those Mexican soldiers, they yelled out, remember the Alamo. And Texas was born. In the same way, we have to hold down apostasy in our church and any other church that we can influence because it is coming. But our job is to stand like patriots and say, no, we'll push back. Well, what if I get attacked? What if you get attacked? So be it. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we could spend together today. Help us to understand how important this topic is. Help me not to short shrift this, but to clearly lay it out as to what it should be. Help us to understand the importance of the subject matter here in 2 Timothy, that we're going to need to get into and in Jude and help us to realize what we should do, how we should commit ourselves, and what is important. I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.